Good afternoon, Patriots. It's January 19th, 2021, and you are listening to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we will shift our focus to 2022 and really look at the state races that will shape our future, as well as look at the work left to be done in order to capture back the House and Senate. All next on Living with Liberty. We have the opportunity to capitalize on the red wave that hit the House of Representatives in particular this year to take back the Senate, the House of Representatives itself, and numerous state houses and senates around the country in the 2022 cycle. In order to do that, though, we have to start planning and um, plotting for that right now. We actually start that process in terms of flipping uh, the individual states' uh, legislatures this year as Virginia's state house is up for election. While the attention you know, goes to the national level and more specifically uh, the presidency, we need equal, if not more, attention at the state and local level. It is here that the base is formed from which we can launch our national level politics and we can really have an impact uh, as to who's really sitting in the president's seat as well as you know funneling down to the Senate and, and the House of Representatives. It starts with the school boards. They are the ones that are the gatekeepers to our children's educational well-being. It starts there with the policy and curriculum choices. We need to elect board members who support good American-centric values and education, good constitutional civics classes. We need to elect municipal officials who believe in law and order and minimal regulation that will spur growth and prosperity for, uh, for the citizens. It has to build in the communities first in order for it to affect state and national level elections. We have to get the word out be willing to put in the effort if we truly are serious about pushing our movement and values forward as conservatives. If we are really uh, interested in, in demonstrating that, yes, indeed, constitutional values of law and order and minimal regulation are a good thing for, uh, for the, the citizenry. It's, you know, the handouts just don't cut it. Just because we don't live in a state it also, you know, that doesn't mean we can't help our cause in that particular state. I've mentioned before that I am involved with Heritage Action. They are officially a nonpartisan group, but they stand for good, uh, for good conservative principles and our Constitution. One of the shifts that they are making uh, now, given what happened in Georgia, is to center focus more on those local and state elections. Now, with this in mind, I emailed my contact at Heritage Action to inquire if there will be any activity on, on our part as, as the foundation in Virginia's state house, state house races as we try to flip that from a Democrat to Republican this year. Now, kind of getting into some of those state-level uh, races, and we'll work our way up to the national level with the Senate and the House of Representatives. We need to flip six seats in Virginia's state house this year to turn it red. Now, that's not an insurmountable amount. This is where we need to start 
uh, in terms of flipping state houses and senates overall. It starts this year. There's uh, currently 30 uh, state houses or legislatures around the country that are red and, third, and straight red, so both the uh, houses, uh, state houses and the senates. And we need 34 to push for a constitutional convention of the states. And we need 38 states to ratify any changes that were made coming out of that uh, constitutional convention. Now, if we can get to 34, we can you know, then push our legislatures for that constitutional convention, and we could open up the Constitution for changes like term limits, which would be huge at the national level. That requires a constitutional amendment. We could put into the Constitution the requirement that the federal budget be balanced, that we quit running deficits year after year, adding to the national uh, national debt. And we could put in there things like the Supreme Court shall have no more than nine justices. And if we want more, we have to have a constitutional convention or an amendment to do so. Now, we do have a reasonable path to 34 states, and I would call a reasonable but certainly more uphill path to getting at least 37 state legislatures uh, read by 2023. Getting into which states are the most reasonable that get us to 34, uh, we'd be looking at Minnesota, where four seats need to flip in the state house. And the line needs to be held in the Senate in 2022. Delaware, where there's six seats to flip in the state house and four in their Senate. And uh, in their Senate, they split uh, they split the seats that are up for election every couple of years. So in 2022, there's 10 seats up for re-election in, tw- in uh, 2022. Uh, we have Nevada with six seats in their state house that we need to flip and only two in the Senate. And there's term limits in Nevada. So if any of those seats coming up in 2022, uh, that the incumbent is at their term limit, you know, we can be hopeful there that this opens the race up more. And as we, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, Virginia with six seats to be flipped this year, and they are looking at two Senate seats to be flipped in 2023. Uh, we w- could have 34 uh, legislatures that are all read by 2023, at, at which point we can, you know, start the push for a, a uh, convention of the states, a constitutional convention of the states. Now, the path to 37 I see is doable, but it is a bit more daunting. And that's just because uh, both the number of seats involved to flip and the states we're talking about here. Uh, So first, uh, looking at the path to 37, we would need Washington to flip nine state house seats and five Senate seats in 2022, Oregon to flip eight state house seats and five Senate seats, and Colorado to flip nine state house seats, but only three Senate seats in 2022. And in Colorado, they also have term limits. So there may be a few of those seats coming up uh, in that 2022 election without a returning incumbent because they've hit their term limits. Now, a convention of the states would be our best opportunity at this point to make our voices heard on what we the people would want in constitutional amendments and what we would uh, demand for our 
uh, our country going forward. At best for ratification, though, as I see it right now, we would need to convince at least one blue state. That's assuming we can flip the other three I just mentioned uh, and get 37 states on board with red legislatures. One blue state we would need to sign off on a ratification of a new constitution or a new constitutional amendments. And, you know, the risk here is that it would likely require some sort of compromise, uh, which, you know, looking further down the line is probably incorporating some sort of liberal wish list type of stuff that would, and, you know, could end up in the, you know, grand scheme of things, derailing the whole constitutional convention because there would just be that much, if it's too radical, there you know the the red states are not going to go for it at all. But as it stands right now, our sanctuary is going to be our states, uh, state governments, and it's going to be impressing our state officials to uphold our constitutional rights and to challenge any and all federal government overreach until we can start flipping the the House of Representatives and Senate back. Our states are are going to be the line right now, and we're going to have to press our elected officials in each of our states to hold that line for us. And in truth, truthfully, it's up to us as people to hold them accountable. Now, I also know that there is going to be a lot of cynicism out there, and and the question will be, what makes anyone think the federal government would abide by a new constitution? And truthfully, I've gotten this question already. You know, and, and they, the questioner cited, you know, it's, it's right now, it just seems that the, uh, the federal government and, you know, really it filters down to our state governments as well, depending, especially depending on, you know, if it's heavily Republican or Democrat led, you know, they continually trample on our current constitution. They continue to just siphon our, our rights away little by little. I say that given our current climate, this is a very, very real possibility. The Democrats in particular, but also the most feckless of rhinos out there as well, only seem to be interested in power, not abiding by our country's agreed-upon operating procedure of ensuring law and order that we have in the Constitution. I think in this scenario, you would end up with a real possibility of states seceding. If you think about it, the Constitution is in essence a contract between we the people and the federal government. It's actually been bastardized a lot over the uh, course of the many decades here now, but never enough to call it an outright breach of contract if you uh, want to think of it in that respect. Yes, we've had rights eroded, but it's it's never really been that outright breach of contract yet. Now, I think if there were a convention of the states that resulted in a newly ratified uh, amendment or amendments, or if we see the Biden administration with now control uh, by the Democrats of the Senate and the House completely ignore the constitutions, the calls and clamoring for secession may grow and get very real. I did a show on secession not being the answer in December, uh, where at that time, you know, looking at our situation and a lot of people were calling for secession after I think a lot of the, the um, Trump uh, court losses, 
uh, still not necessarily being the answer. I don't know even in this scenario if it would be, but, um, you know, I, I think it, as I look at things here in, in a scenario where we have the government is outright ignoring the Constitution, the contract uh, between the people and the federal government, a case could be made for justifying secession as it really at that point, I would view it as a breach of contract. You know, uh, kind of moving into uh, more of the uh, national level things here. Uh, in 2022, we need to focus in uh, really big on the state houses and senates, uh, 2021 uh, 20, uh, and 2023, if you're in Virginia. We also have to, more work to do uh, to continue on in the House of Representatives and the, the U.S. Senate. We do have, I feel, momentum on our side in the House. We have now 20 seats that had margins of 5% or less in the 2020 races. Uh, so really fairly close, within striking distance, if we wanted to flip those seats. So that's uh, 20 seats Democrats won uh, by a margin of 5% or less. And if you think about it, getting down you know, district by district, some of those districts might be really big. And you wouldn't need necessarily a lot of votes to flip them. You could be talking about hundreds or even in some cases, tens of votes or even individual votes in the case of uh, New York um, 22. Uh, that one's uh, still yet to be decided. Um, but, you know, that, that's a lot of seats with really close margins that we put in the work we can, we can flip. Now, looking at 2022, assuming we hold the seats uh, that we have for conservatives, we would need six or seven seats uh, to flip in order to gain the majority there. And six, if New York 22 stays with the uh, Republican that is currently leading that race by, I believe, something like 12 votes or something like that, it's, it's razor thin. Seven, if it ends up uh, where there's magically enough votes found for the Democrat uh, uh, or the Democrat uh, challenger there uh, to flip the House. Now, if I look at those 20 uh, that were 5% or less margin of victory for the Democrats, eight had margins under 3%. And I think, you know, those are those eight are where we would focus extra effort and, you know, would be be really the, the ones that we should target for to be flipped. Those I think would be the easiest. Uh, a lot of those, several of those, I would say, um, I think about four, if I if I remember correctly here, I didn't note it, but I think it's about four, we're under 2%. Uh, and so those seats uh, are ripe for, for the picking, in my opinion. Now, those seats, uh, I, I want to uh, kind of rattle them off here. So, uh, you know, those listening and those in in those districts, uh, know that hey, we have an opportunity here. Let's let's go and get it. So those seats are Illinois uh, District 14, Iowa 3, Michigan 11, Minnesota 2, New Jersey 7, Pennsylvania 17, Virginia 7, and Wisconsin 3. We need six or seven seats, friends, and here are eight that look reasonably vulnerable to be flipped. Will there be some dogfights on the close Republican seats? Absolutely. That's why I said this is dependent on us holding those seats. 
those will have to be defended vigorously and will and, and you know held so we have that opportunity to flip the house with these other what I would call vulner, uh, vulnerable seats. What could also help in flipping the house will be the reapportion uh, the reapportionment that will occur after the census is complete. Current forecasts have 10 seats being redistributed amongst the states. The biggest gainers of seats is forecasted to be Texas with three and Florida with two and Arizona, Montana, Colorado, and North Carolina each picking up one seat. Now here's where state races matter since it's the state legislatures that draw the maps. It's conceivable of these 10 reapportioned seats, eight end up red. You know, and as I look at Texas, Florida, Arizona, Montana, and North Carolina, they all have GOP-led legislatures. So we all know how those district maps tend to get drawn. Um, Sometimes they tend to favor one party over the other. And this this is why local races and state races are so important. Now, if I look at the states projected to lose seats, it might end up as a 50-50 split on Democrat and Republican seats lost. So, you know, even in this scenario, it could be a net gain of of three seats. But now, instead of looking at having to get six or seven seats flipped, you know, we have, through a reapportionment, you know, maybe these eight seats and a net gain of three that are going to be solid red, we'd only have to flip three or four of the Democrat-held seats for sure. Now, looking at the Senate, as I see it, there's really only two seats that would be reasonable at this point to expect to flip, and both will require better candidates from the Republican side or conservative side at this point than the ones that ran in this cycle. One is the Arizona seat now held by Mark Kelly. The other is the one... Uh, now held by Raphael Warnock in the just-completed Georgia runoff. In uh, 2022, there will be 13 Democrats versus 21 Republicans up for re-election. And the Democrats have the likes of Chuck Schumer and uh, Patrick Leahy and Dick Blumenthal up for re-election. All those are very solid blue seats. Our best bet here will be to hold on to the Republican seats we have up for re-election and try to win back the Kelly and Warnock seats. The other consideration here in the Senate is that the uh, the Republicans are trying to get Chuck Grassley to run again in 2022. He'll be 89 at that point. And the other consideration here is Pat Toomey of, of Pennsylvania will be retiring in 2022. So looking at that, there's at least one seat that will really be up for grabs, and maybe two, depending on what Grassley does. Then uh, the Democrats will come hard at both seats. So from a conservative side, uh, the messaging and outreach will have to be on point in order to retain these seats for the, for the uh, GOP. We are going to have to show that we are the party of uh, the you know Constitution, that we're for law and order, and that we are going to continue to stand up and fight in the manner that Trump has shown us. Now, friends, we are going to need to take an active role going forward in the process of holding our elected officials' feet to the fire if we are going to see the 2022 elections pan out as we want them to.
it's not just going to happen on its own. We need to prep now, lay the foundation uh, of and expectations with our elected officials and with our lawmakers to in order to have 2022 carry on the momentum we built in this cycle. What do we need to do to ensure our voice is heard in the manner we expect it to be heard in the next time we go to the polls? How do we ex- uh, ensure our vote counts and isn't stolen or uh, you know fraudulently, fraudulently taken? We have a few things here that we need to that we need to be pressing our elected officials on between now and really. By the time 2022 rolls around this, I think we press through this, uh, press our officials on this throughout the course of this year. So all laws uh, and um, and laws and and, uh, processes are in place for that 2022 election. As I mentioned in my last show, it really is a lot of small things that we all will do that will add up to the big win. And it all, like I said, has to occur between now and the start of 2022. Now, here's the list of things that as we go throughout 2021, we need to be pressing our elected officials to do. First thing, we need to put pressure on our elected officials to reform the election laws as needed, as required, and to ensure that laws that are already on the books are followed. To the letter. Now, a big one of these is either we add or ensure that this is followed for all cases. It's the voter ID laws. This day and age, with what you need an ID for, there is no excuse that any legal resident over 18 does not have an ID. The next thing we need to do is push for election or campaign reform laws, uh, campaign financing reform laws, to push the POC, PACs and special interest money that flows into our states from out of states, from corporations, from out of countries, we need to push that money out of our elections. Candidates need to be funded by the people that they are serving, not some corporate entity that gives them money, and then we're get, having our rights given away to these corporations by because they've got to please their our elected officials have to please their donors. You know, push for paper ballots. You cannot hack paper. Um, these internet machines. If okay, we're going to use internet machines or uh, uh, electronic machines. They cannot be connected to the internet. There, I know. I believe it was Georgia. I think most places, but Georgia in specific seems to be sticking in my right mind right now where there actually is a law in the books that says these machines can't be connected to the internet and Wi-Fi, and they were anyway. We need a, a real demonstrated reason that you need an absentee ballot. I mean, it has to be a real need. You're either out of the country, you're in the military, or you are, uh, you know, just disabled to the point where you cannot, you know, physically leave your house. A real demonstrated reason for a mail-in absentee ballot. If you are in your district at the time of the vote, you need a vote in person. We do this, we cut down on all the mail-in vote shenanigans. 
we need no indefinitely confined ballot requests. And, you know, in the case of, of uh, the absentee ballot and this indefinitely confined, there has to be some sort of ID and matching there. We need to get rid of all ballot harvesting. That the, the fact that people can go around and collect in, in some of these states hundreds of ballots and, and take them in and they can go and guide people on how to vote is ridiculous. Everybody goes to the polls themselves and picks the candidate they want to pick, not some ballot harvester coming by telling them, here, you need to change your ballot or this is who you need to vote for. We need to get rid of day of registration. Um, you know, there again, there should be no problems this day and age to sign up uh, and register to vote well ahead of election day. You can even do it online. We have, There's ways now to take a picture of your ID and securely send it in and, and uh, re, you know, get registered that way if you don't want to go down to the, the city hall to do so. Voting, the uh, next thing here is voting occurs on the day prescribed by state law. Let's get rid of this early voting. Uh, we Some states are voting for a month ahead of the actual election. Vote on the day of the election. The only, um, you know, exception to that will be the mail-in absentee ballots that people demonstrate they need to, you know, have a real demonstrated need to be voting absentee. And now the kind of, so that's the voting piece. Now, if we look at, at uh, our elected representative piece here, we need uh, to find out where they stand on the America First agenda. If they are wishy-washy or want to compromise too much, primary them. If there's no primary challenger, maybe there's an independent or libertarian running on an American first, a people first agenda. We have to be candidate over party at this point. If those options aren't there, unfortunately, you may have to hold your nose and, and vote for Walter Wishy-Washy there. Uh, and, and then it's at that time, spend the time between election cycles looking for that stronger candidate who is going to support an America first and a people first agenda. Lastly, join a local conservative group. Now, it may be a, a Republican group, and that's fine. There needs to be reinforcing voices within the party that says we will not take the party's fecklessness anymore, that we will push this party forward to put America and its people first that we will no longer just roll over, but will fight for our values, freedoms, and liberties. As Trump leaves office, we need to be the ones that carry the torch on of this movement he started. And we need to do so in order to take our government back. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. I'd be so grateful if you left a positive review, should your listening platform allow it. Also, please subscribe and share my podcast with friends and family. It will help us move up the charts and help more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my podcast with your friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. Also, I'd be grateful if you subscribed to my podcast and signed up for notifications. 
It'll help you stay up to date with Living with Liberty. With Parlor Down, I can be found on MeWe by searching Living with Liberty. And I also now have a Telegram channel. The handle there is at Living with Liberty. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.